How can we determine that a word seemingly so very contrary to others we have heard from God is actually from God? Here in Zechariah chapter 11, after some very positive words that are given to encourage the returnees, Zechariah has a very powerfully negative word. And it just seems to flow right in from chapter 10 into chapter 11. So if you were one of the returnees, how would you take this shift? If you heard this, this news, if you were one of the Jews in Jerusalem, how would you respond to this? And we're also going to see in this chapter the context of the prophetic word about Judas receiving 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Last week we were looking at the value of prophetic light. We looked at four different types of light that we need to learn in our life to help us along the way. The first is today's light. This is the easy one, what most people walk in. That which is made known by what I see or what I feel. My present day difficulties. Opportunities illuminate my way. No, with uh, Abraham, there was no children. There was famine in the land. They'll kill me for my wife. These are the things that illuminated his way. And these are the things that gave him light. Israel, they saw there was no food, no water. They saw the Red Sea trap. David saw Bathsheba. Felt like he ought to do the census. Things going on with King Saul. As long as we are moved by today's light, we're going to have a hard time moving into things that are really going to usher us into a powerful life of God. The second one was false light, that which is made known by sources detached from God. For Israel was, let's go to Egypt. I'm sorry, for Abraham was, let's go to Egypt after they get to the land. He hears from people. He hears some, maybe something inside himself. Let's go to Egypt. Never been there. Uh, lie about your wife. Say she's your sister. That worked out real good for him. For Israel, let's make new gods. Let's desire positions that were not given to us. And who is this Moses? And then, of course, for David, once he sees Bathsheba, he decides to give in to the voice that says, send for her. And then the one that says, kill her husband. And then the one that says, cover it up. No one will know. Once we get determined false light, we can also learn to determine true light. And that is light which is made known by the sources connected to God. This is where Abraham heard, get up from your land. And notice he heard, get up from your land, and also heard false light. You have to be able to discern between true light and false light, because they will both come at you at the same time. Get up from your land. Go to a land that I will show you. Sacrifice your son. God, he learned, is his deliverer. And he got many of the names for God from revelations that came to him. For Israel... We are well able to take the land. That was true light that was given to them. Cross over the Jordan. March around Jericho. These are things that God spoke to them. Then the last one was tomorrow's light. That which is made known by by God's sent prophetic voices. For Abraham, Sarah shall have a son. Not anybody else. It shall be Sarah. Your descendants will be as the sand of the shore. Stars of the sky. And then he told them about the 400 years that they would be in another land. For Israel, they were told prophetically about a land flowing with milk and honey. God said, I have given you the land. They had to go take it, but God, I have given you the land. For David, you will be king. I will make you an eternal house, and your son shall build my temple. Those four things are things we need to learn. We cannot be walking all of our Christian life in today's light. We have to at some point become very well versed in discerning false light from true light because the devil is very good at making his false light appear to be light and that's where we'll see some of the things helping us out today how can we determine that this word is from God so we're going to take a look at Zechariah chapter 11 verse 1 as I was doing a lot of research and there's a lot of history I was trying to comb through to uh, pull out some things about this chapter and as I was looking over some of these over these things, I came upon something that somebody made a comment about Zechariah chapter 11. I thought about it and I thought you could almost make that comment about a lot of Zechariah, but in particular chapter 11. His comment was this, there is no good reason for anyone to ever teach from Zechariah chapter 11 unless you are a seminary student and it was assigned to you. (laughs) Uh, He he was not saying that there's no value in it. He says uh, most people don't pick it up. And they, they just don't uh, they don't go on to, to study this. 
because it is a very difficult chapter, especially after the last two, because this is extremely negative. This is doom, destruction, alienation, all that sort of thing is in this particular chapter, and it's very hard to make this jive with the ones that went on before. Let's pick it up here in verse 1. Open you your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. The NET reads this way, the impenetrable forest has fallen, has fallen. Not just the thick forest, but the impenetrable forest has fallen. That's probably more in line with the idea that this prophetic word has. It describes the coming of an army through the area of the north. And like we said, it is quite a change from the previous words that God had, had spoken. So open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Now, Lebanon is very well known for its cedars. And they are very tall. They dwarf the cedars that, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the oaks or the cypresses, depending upon your translation. They very much dwarf those by comparison. And if the cedars fall, the other things won't be much in the way. This is likely fulfilled in the Roman campaign against Judah in 67 to 70 AD. This is carried out by Vespasian until it was turned over to his successor, Titus. So if you can pull up our map, I wanted to show you something. And I had read that this is is uh, talking about the Romans coming down through the northern country. And so I looked all over the place for a map on this, and I started on Monday, and I could not find a map on Monday. So I went back to it on Tuesday, and I could not find a map on Tuesday. So I changed the search uh, parameters a little bit and did another search today, and now I found it. But I couldn't even find a whole lot of written information that was telling me the information that I wanted to find out, and that is when Vespasian came and attacked Judea. Which direction did he come from? And so what we have here, this is a map that shows how they all came about. Now this is the area of... Uh, well, that's a little bit different than I, I thought. Uh, the Caesarea is down over here. So Caesarea is really where all the trouble started for this particular uh, rebellious uprising. But down over here, these are the cedars of Lebanon, down over here in this section. And when Vespasian comes with the, uh, the legions that he, he was coming with from Rome, I believe it was the 10th and the 12th, he came down from this area over here and he comes down through the area of Lebanon. So I wanted to verify that before I told you. He came down through Lebanon. So this prophecy, just like the ones before that talked about the order, gave you the order, is actually the way that they were attacked. He's actually coming down through the north. He is being met by Titus. I believe Titus is coming up from Egypt and Titus comes up and meets him up over in here and the two join forces. And what they begin to do as they... Uh, they attack is they take over all the countryside of Judea and they leave Jerusalem alone until the end. Now some of the things that started this thing out, if you ever wondered what caused Rome to come down in this campaign and to do this, according to Josephus, the violence began at Caesarea in, in 66 AD and was provoked by Greeks of a certain... Now listen to this. See how... Uh, how much this sounds like some things that can happen today. It was provoked by Greeks of a certain merchant house sacrificing birds in front of a local synagogue. So the people of the local synagogue were a little taken back by the fact that this local uh, merchant was sacrificing birds. Of course, they weren't sacrificing birds, I'm sure, to, to Jehovah. They were sacrificing birds to one of the Greek gods. And they didn't take too kindly to that, so there was some trouble that came up with that. In reaction, one of the Jewish temple clerks, Eleazar ben Hananiah, ceased prayers and sacrifices for the Roman emperor at the temple. There were protests over taxation, joined the list of grievances and random attacks on Roman citizens and perceived traitors 
occurred in Jerusalem. The Jewish temple was then breached by the Roman troops in order to, in the, I'm sorry, at the order of the procurator, Gaius Florus, who had 17 talents removed from the treasury of the temple, claiming the money was for the emperor. In response to this action, the city fell into unrest, and some of the Jewish population began to openly mock Florus by passing a basket around to collect money as if Florus was poor. Florus reacted to the unrest by sending soldiers into Jerusalem the next day to raid the city and arrest a number of the city leaders who were later whipped. Now listen to this in light of some of the things that Paul wrote about. Who were later whipped and crucified despite many of them being Roman citizens. Boy, could they have been opening up a can of worms there. They were city leaders. They were, some of them were Roman citizens. They were whipped and crucified. Well, shortly after this, an outraged Judean nationalist took up arms and the Roman military garrison of Jerusalem was quickly overrun. Herod Agrippa II and his sister Berenice fled Jerusalem to Galilee and the, the militia later moved upon Roman citizens of the, of Judean and pro-Roman officials, and they cleansed the country of any Roman symbols. Among another, other things that went on, the Sicarii Rebbe faction surprised the Roman garrison at, of Masada and took over the fortress. If you ever wondered how did the Jewish people have control of the Roman fortress Masada, that's how they got it. They got it by surprise. And uh, it was a very easy place to fortify, but apparently they were not expecting rebel forces to come in. They did. That's what started it off. It wasn't being suppressed. This was not the first uprising. Rome got tired of this. And so it doesn't help Rome to wipe out countries because then they're not paying you any taxes. So as much as they can, they want to keep you everything functioning so you can keep sending them money. Sending them taxes. But they, uh, unrest can spread to other countries if Rome allows it to go on. So they decided this is too much. We got to take this out. So Vespasian was dispatched. Then he went on down here and he began to conquer the, uh, areas around here. Some of them just surrendered. Other ones put up a bit of a fight. He gets, uh, around over here to Jerusalem. As they get around to Jerusalem, they begin to, to surround the city. The Emperor Nero, who is the one who sent Vespasian on the uh, pilgrimage, uh, dies. And so a new emperor goes in his place, and they actually go through a succession of about three different emperors until finally Vespasian is selected to be emperor from a distance. So Vespasian decides, I have to go back to Rome. So he heads back to Rome, taking some of the forces with him, because now he's the emperor. You can't just go wandering around the, the wilderness. So he heads on back to Rome to take care of that. He turns over the uh, siege of Jerusalem to his son Titus. So if you ever wonder how Titus got involved in the mix and how Titus is associated with this part of uh, the siege of Jerusalem, that is how that particular thing happened. Um, there's some other things I want you to see first off in the scripture here. Verse 3 reads this way. There is a sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. The, um, oh, I, th- I think this, forget this is the NLT or the NET, I, f- I didn't uh, note it in mind. Listen to the howling of shepherds, because their magnificence has been destroyed. Listen to the roaring of the young lions, because the thickets of the Jordan have been devastated. There doesn't seem to be any other place for this to be fulfilled except in the Roman conquest that comes in 67 to 70 AD, which is completed when Jerusalem falls in 70 AD. This prophecy is given over 500 years before this thing is, comes about. And this is uh, what is predicted. So it's predicted that the army is coming in through the north. But it's really hard to read this as being an invasion from the north until after it is all fulfilled, and then you can read it. It's, oh, now we can see that. Now we can see what's going on here. In verse 4, Thus says the Lord, 
my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their shepherds do not pity them. The New Living reads it this way. The buyers slaughter their sheep without remorse. The sellers say, Praise the Lord, now I'm rich. Even the shepherds have no compassion for them. Now it is very likely, and I put it here perhaps, but it's very likely that Zechariah was shepherding an actual flock of sheep representing the Jewish people. Zechariah, of course, would be representing the Lord who had determined this flock for judgment. So the Lord says this group right here, these folks in Judea, they are determined for judgment. Now try and hear that after he just says, your neighbors aren't going to come down upon you. They're not going to burn the temple. They're not going to come against you. And now right up into this one, and he says, all right, basically you're all going to die. I mean, how do you jive that? How do you pull that together? seems all those who can use the sheep for whatever benefit they can get. Those who sold them say, praise the Lord, we're rich now. <laughs> they see the Lord's hand in it. Isn't it amazing the things that people can see the Lord's hand in? And you can just step back and say, that the Lord was not in that. You may have gotten some profit off of that. You may have gotten rich, but the Lord was not in that. And eventually, there will be a price to pay for it. Because God is not happy with these shepherds and the way that they are behaving. So the owners sell them. The new owners slaughter them. They feel no guilt. They all look at what they personally gain from the sheep instead of being a shepherd and doing what a shepherd should, looking out for the good of the, of the sheep. And, of course, this goes in with some of the parables. We've been looking at Jesus, talking about the things of the shepherd, the false shepherds, the not the true shepherds, the ones coming through another way. All these things are coming together for us in that. Verse 6, For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land and I will not deliver them from their hand. I've gone over quite a few translations on this and I really can't find anything that helps us to get any more light than what this is saying. You could read this as in everyone's hand is against themselves. Or you could read it that the kings that come against them and the people they bring with them are come, coming against them too. Now there is, uh, it does come about that Israel does, does uh, work to come against themselves. In fact, I believe it is Josephus. And in this battle that is going on here in, um, in the land of Judea, leading up to the siege of Jerusalem, Josephus, as we know him, the, as the historian, was actually a general. He was one of the generals that was leading the attack against Vespasian. And he was having some success in some aspects of the initial battle. He was one of the reasons why they had gained control from the Romans that were in there before. But when Vespasian came down with the larger army, this was uh, more difficult. There was a particular time when uh, according to, I believe it's Josephus' writings on this, so that's all we have to verify it. Josephus was with Vespasian. I think they were uh, finally, uh, he was um, conquered and he had uh, surrendered. And he was with Vespasian. And the way he tells it, the Spirit of God came upon him and he told him that uh, there would be some good news coming and he would be emperor over Rome actually prophesied that he would be emperor over Rome. It was not long after that, and I don't know if it was hours or days, but it was not long after that that news came from Rome to Vespasian, you are now the new emperor. And so Vespasian was so intrigued by this that he had just given him this word, and it came about that Josephus was given a place of, of prominence in the... Uh, in his uh, uh, government there. And so that's why he was able to write so much history about this, and we know him as the historian, but initially he was one of the generals who was leading the armies around the area of Galilee, uh, attacking the Romans and, and ridding them from the land, and then uh, eventually in the battles with Vespasian. So I just didn't want to bypass telling you that little bit of history on there. 
But there is a point in the city of Jerusalem where they were killing them and Josephus, where they were killing each other. And Josephus actually wrote that more died at the hands of their Jewish brethren than died at the hands of the Romans. Verse 7, So I fled for slaughter, in particular the poor of the, of the flock. So I, I'm sorry, I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one called beauty, and the other I called bombs, and I fed the flock. Now these two names here, I'm going to try and give you all that I can on, on these. The New Living Translation translates verse 7 this way. So I cared for the flock intended for slaughter. They put it as the poor of the flock in the New King James, but I think this is a better way of, of getting the meaning across. I cared for the flock intended for slaughter. The flock that was oppressed. Then I took two shepherd staffs and named one favor and the other union. That's probably a little bit better naming for what they're actually uh, going to mean. The one for favor can also uh, mean grace. The ESV translated this way. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs. One I named favor and the other I named union. And I tended the sheep. Now this first one, it shows the favored status of Israel as a chosen people of God. And union symbolized the internal harmony of the people that was lost at the siege of Jerusalem. Verse 8, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul was abhorred. Their soul also abhorred me. The New Living translates this verse this way. I got rid of their three evil shepherds in a single month, but I became impatient with these sheep, and they hated me too. <laughs> well, they were doomed for, de for destruction. He says, I became impatient with them because of some of the ways they were acting, and they weren't too kind to, kind, kindly to him either. The three shepherds that are here, not a whole lot that we, we really have that we can figure this out. It seems like he is talking about three particular shepherds that had it in for him. But there is a possibility that it's not talking about three individuals, but three groups of people. So I'll just throw this out there to you that you can kind of consider it. If there were three individuals, we don't know who they are. There's nothing written about any three particular individuals, so we won't be able to know who they are. It does make the Word of God. It would seem that if it made the Word of God, it'd be something more encompassing than just three people who didn't like Him, whose names are lost in history. But it could be, symbolically, three classes of people. Prophets, priests, and kings. Because at the end of this Roman assault upon the Jewish people in 70 A.D., though they finished up in 70 A.D., at the end of this, Israel has no more prophets. The church has prophets, but Israel has no more prophets. They have no more priests because the temple is gone, and they have no more king. So it is very possible that these three classes of people are what's in, in mind there. And they would not be picked up again until when? Until Messiah comes and he takes over all three areas. He becomes prophet, he becomes priest, and he becomes king. So I tend to think more along the lines of the three classes of people than three individuals. But again, it could be three individuals, partially fulfillment, present day, future fulfillment in the three classes of, of people. Could very well be something like that as well. Verse 9, Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff beauty and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I made, I had made with all the peoples. Now remember, Zechariah takes up this position as this shepherd over these people. He is symbolizing the good shepherd. So when they hate him, when the sheep hate Zechariah, it is the people who hate God. They're mad with God. They reject the good shepherd. And they rejected Jesus as the good shepherd. That was certainly one thing that they had done. He says, verse 9 again, I will not feed you. 
Let what is dying die and what is perishing perish. If you're on your way out, I'm not interfering. I'm letting you die. Now, he's representing God. These are the words that God's putting in here. This is what God is saying as to the state of Israel during this particular chapter. You're, you are doomed to destruction. But I'm still over there shepherding you. I'm still over there looking. You rejected, you rejected Messiah. So what you have instead is a worthless shepherd. There's more, more symbolizing on that. We're going to get there in, in just a little bit. You're going to have a worthless shepherd instead. And he's going to let whatever's dying die. And God's going to have the attitude, look, y'all don't like me. You don't like what I've been doing for you. You've rejected me. You've rejected my word. You've rejected the true worship. You've rejected my son. So look, if you're dying, I'm going to let you die. If you're perishing, I'm going to let you perish. I'm just not getting involved anymore. That those that are left eat each other's flesh. Boy, that sounds nasty, doesn't it? But here's what happened over that course of that battle. As Vespasian was combing the countryside and, and winning battles, people were fleeing into the stronghold of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was taking a whole lot more, more people in. And Vespasian's okay with this. He didn't mind it. In fact, when he attacked, he began to siege, I believe it was... Um, uh, three, I think he began the siege three days before the, the beginning of the feast. And so there were people who wanted to come into Jerusalem for the feast. So Vespasian says, excuse me, he says, by all means, go on in. If you wanted to go into the city, even though he has a siege around it, go ahead. You had free pass. Nobody would get, would stop you. But he wasn't going to let them out. He's going to keep them all in there. Oh, no, no. You wanted to get in? You're in. And so what he did was he taxed the food that was in the city. And he's creating an overcrowded situation. And he knows what that will do to people. And it did exactly what he wanted it to do. And they were at each other's throats because you had two main factions in here. You had the zealots. And then you had the group that wasn't quite the, uh, uh, zealous, zealous as they were. So these two factions are, are feuding and fighting. What they ended up doing was in their fighting amongst each other, they set the food reserves on fire. And the entire city's food reserves burned. It's gone. Now you've got an overcrowded city and no food. So guess what they ate? They ate each other. This is exactly what happened. Prophesied over 500 years before it actually happened. And this is how it unfolded in the city. Because Jerusalem was overcrowded. They were fighting amongst themselves. They were killing each other. And then they began to eat each other as well. Boy, what a terrible place to be. And God's looking on this and saying, hey, you rejected me. Go for it. You rejected my son. You crucified him on a cross. You said, we don't want him to be our Messiah. Let what is dying die and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff beauty and cut it in two that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the peoples. Other translation reads this way. Then I took my staff, called favor, and cut it in two, showing that I had revoked the covenant I had made with all the nations. I had revoked the covenant I had made with all the nations. God had made a covenant with His people. His people were favored of God. And He basically took that staff and He cut it in two. He says, nope, we're breaking it right now. You are no longer, you no longer have favored status. Where'd the favorite status go to? Went to the church. God took away his protective hand. He has no compassion on those who are dying. Verse 11, So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Now this is an intriguing verse. 
So it was broken on that day. The covenant was broken on that day. Well, Israel had not been honoring the covenant. And, remember, Jesus gave the parable of the vineyard. And when the owner of the vineyard, he sent his son. What did they do to the son? They killed him. And the Lord said, Jesus said to the people, what do you think the owner of that vineyard is going to do? Well, he's going to come down. He's going to kill those people that own it. He's going to give the vineyard to someone else who will pay with their, give the, the fruit of the vineyard when it's due. And he said, exactly. That's what he's going to do. And he did. He came down and he killed those who ran the vineyard because they were not running the vineyard the way they were. And he gave it to people who would run it the way that God wanted it. And that was the church. So God said, you are no longer the favored nation. Now they would eventually, they will eventually come back in and God will deal with the Jewish nation again, but they still will not serve him as a whole. But it says, so it was broken on that day, thus the poor of the flock. Let me read it to you from the NET. So it was annulled that very day. And then the most afflicted of the flock who kept faith with me knew that that was the word of the Lord. I like the way that it was worded in here. It makes it a little bit more readable. And then the most afflicted of the flock who kept the faith, who kept faith with me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. How did they know this was the word of the Lord when it prophesied so much doom and destruction and the other words were so much more positive? Because they were watching the Lord. Because they kept their eye on the Lord. They knew who to watch. Sometimes people are not watching the Lord. They're watching what they want to happen. They're watching for what they want to hear. These particular people were not doing that. This whole thing goes over a number of of years. The previous chapter was looking at what God was going to do for them then and also what God was going to do for them uh, later when he was going to call them all back into the country again. This, this particular chapter really jumps in front of chapter 10 because what it's doing is here's the judgment that came in. This is a judgment that's going to come in. And after this judgment comes in, chapter 10 is going to kick in again. And not only the way I brought you back from Babylon, I'm going to bring you back from all the world. I'm going to bring you back from all around. You're going to come in. And I'm going to, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to help you. And so the people who are watching the Lord and they can see what people were doing in Jesus' day, they could see what the the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing in Jesus' day, they could see that they didn't care about the flock. They didn't care that the flock got healed. They cared that the flock didn't get healed on Sunday or, or the Sabbath day, I should say. That's what they cared about. They didn't care that Jesus was doing good things, what they cared about is, is the law being upheld the way we understand the law to be upheld? They were not caring about the flock. They were selfish. What can happen that can benefit us? This is what this prophecy is looking at. This is what is coming. It is talking about the day in which Jesus is coming. And this is why in this we have the prophecy of the 30 pieces of silver. Because it was looking ahead to the day that Jesus Messiah would be here and that they would reject him and destruction would come upon him. But you see, there was a small number of people in this group who were watching the shepherd. They were watching the good shepherd. They saw the good shepherd suddenly not be using his staff to protect them anymore. Not be feeding them the way he was feeding them. Suddenly, the good shepherd is standing back and saying, Hey, if you all want to go that way, go. Let what is dying die. I'm okay with this now. They were watching the good shepherd. And when they saw that, they could tell this word is from God. This word may not be what we want to hear. We may not like this word, but this word is from God. This is what's going on. That is the attitude of the shepherd. The CSB translation reads verse 11 this way. It was annulled on that day and so the the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of God or word of the Lord. 
The New American Standard Bible puts it this way. So it was broken on that day, and so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. Now, if you ever go and you do any other research in this, and I dare say very few people have probably even cracked open Zechariah chapter 11. So the idea that anyone may from here on out go and crack open Zechariah chapter 11 may be far-fetched. But you may come upon a couple of translations, if you do, that read, instead of the flock, the sheep merchants. If you ever run into a translation, and there are several out there, I did not include any of them in here, but there are a few out there. It is because the Septuagint reads sheep merchants instead of flock. And so they took it from the Septuagint instead of from the original writing. Um, I really don't see sheep merchants being the, the uh, intent here. I think very much it is the flock. So the poor of the flock, they knew that it was the word of the Lord. These were the remnant of people who remained faithful. And God always seems to have a remnant of people that remain faithful. The few who stay true to God, stay true to His Word, and knew that even such hard words were indeed from God. Verse 12. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out from my wages thirty pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. That princely, that princely price they set on me. Now, there's our 30 pieces of silver. The New Living Translation simply puts it this way, this magnificent sum at which they valued me. This is the value they put on Messiah. This is the value that Judas put on Messiah. This is the value that the the, uh, leaders put on Messiah. 30 pieces of silver. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, this is uh, spoken prophetically of Jesus, of course we know. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. I gave you some references for that. And basically, this is, according to Exodus, this is the price of a slave. Now, I think it's amazing that in the book of Exodus, it established the price of a a slave. And in all those years, up till Jesus, the price hadn't gone up. (laughs) It's still 30 pieces of silver. That's where the price came from. That's what Jesus was looked at. And that's what they paid. In Matthew, though, 27, verse 9, I want to read this for you. Because this poses the problem. You have probably read this many a time. And have never seen the problem. So because of that, I'm going to read it for you so you can see the problem. (laughs) Matthew 27, 9. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was pierced, or his priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Who prophesied this, this prophecy? This Zechariah. Why does Matthew say that Jeremiah prophesied it? If it was Zechariah. Now, I bet you never realized that was a problem, did you? Well, there's three possible solutions for this. I don't like the first one. Could be an error, but just not by Matthew. There might be some early copyist who made a mistake and perhaps wrote uh, uh, Matthew when they're copying. Matthew, instead of writing Zechariah, the copyist put Jeremiah instead. That's a possibility. I don't like it, but certainly that could have happened. Something that Jeremiah spoke this prophecy and that Zechariah recorded it. Well, that's possible. But uh, I don't think so. I think the Lord looks over his word to make sure that it was copied correctly. So I really don't like the first one. And um, this came right out of what Zechariah is getting. And Zechariah is the one who is being the uh, the shepherd. I don't see Jeremiah speaking this this word. I see Zechariah recording it. So here's the third one. This is the only one of the three I like. Some think that Matthew refers to the scroll of Jeremiah, which included the book of Zechariah. I can see that one working. Because the people of that day would have known the scroll of, of Jeremiah 
included the book of Zechariah. And they probably would have read that, heard that, and not even thought another word of it. But we don't have the scroll of Jeremiah that includes the book of Zechariah. So we look at that and we might be, be wondering. So I think it's more along those lines. But it says there, let's read over the verse again. Then he said, it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price or that magnificent sum at which they uh, valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. This remarkably describes what happened without telling you what's going to happen. Prophecy is so good that way. That you can read this and not be prepared for what's going to happen. And Judas himself could not have uh, orchestrated this to fulfill it because it's very hard to understand that this is prophesying the events to unfold the way that they did until after they do. And then you read, oh, well, you look at that. That's pretty much exactly what he's calling for right there. So it says, first of all, throw it to the potter. And then secondly, well, I'm sorry, first of all, throw it into the, into the temple and then throw it to the potter. Well, when he was paid the 30 pieces of silver, of course, we know he felt remorse and he came on in and he threw it into the temple. And they saw it all there on the field, or the, the floor there. Well, we can't use it. It's blood money. You know, they have, they have rules. <laughs> we, we, can, uh, we can buy the guy, but we can't uh, use the money for anything else. So they uh, had somebody else pick it up. They all collected it. And they said, let's go out here and we'll buy a field and we'll bury people on it. And it's called the Potter's Field. Now, what's interesting about the Potter's Field, in case you didn't know this about that, it is uh, called that because what you would do is the people who would make pottery, they didn't really have a landfill area. And so if you had broken pottery that you were making and it didn't quite work out, you could bring it all over here. And this is the Potter's Field. You take and you throw the, the useless uh, piece of pottery over there and you have all this broken pottery on this field. So it became known as the potter's field. So they went over there and decided, we'll buy this and we'll turn this into a a place to bury people who don't have any place to be buried. And of course, Judas was the first one who would be, be put on there. So the money was thrown into the temple and then the money was taken and put into the potter's field. And so we can see a perfect fulfillment of this and yet it's not described in a way that anybody could sit there and say, all right, got to do this first and then this first or this next and then this next in order to fulfill what's in Scripture. But once it was done, we could say, oh, look at that. That's exactly what was called for. Uh, let's go on here to verse 14. Then I cut in two my other staff, bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and, and Israel. I believe the New Living Translation I gave uh, puts it this way. Then I took my other staff, Union, and cut it in two, showing that the bond of unity between Judah and Israel was broken. Now this uh, is showing a couple of things. First off, there was no bond of unity in the people in the city. They were fighting amongst themselves. But beside that, after this, they are not dispersed in captivity into Babylon. They are not dispersed into captivity into Egypt. They are dispersed throughout the world. There's no unity now. They are all over the place. Before, they were held together. They were held together in Egypt. They were held together in Judea. They were held together when Israel was a united country. They were held together in Babylon. Then they were all brought back and they were held together in Judea again. But after this, he said, that bond is being broken. And now you're going to be dispersed. And there was no one place for them to be. They were all over. Now, they may have known some things. They know we got some Jewish brethren over here. we got some Jewish brethren over here. They may have known that, but there was no one place where they were mostly at. The bond was broken. This is what the Lord is saying. So that was me who kept you all together. Even when you were in judgment, it was me who kept you all together. But now I'm breaking that. And you're not going to be kept together. He prophesied this over, well over 500 years before it occurred. In fact, it was almost 600 years before it occurred. That, all right, you've been together all this time, but now that's going to stop. It says, uh, verse 14, Then I cut into my other staff bonds that I might break brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Uh, that's not the one I wanted. I want you to see this. Right after 
right after the sale of the Son of God. 30 pieces of silver. Right after that, this is when it says, Then I cut in two my other staff. Now you're going to be broken up. It's right after that what they did in rejecting Jesus. They valued, first off, they said the value of God's Son is the value of a slave. They sold him out for the same amount of money. So this will be the complete breakup of the brotherhood when Rome comes and scatters them. Slaughtered a lot of them. Many of them died inside of Jerusalem. Many others died outside. They took the men of of the city and they set up crosses all over and they just crucified man after man after man. All along, just people were all over on crosses after Titus went through the city. I don't know who took them down. Verse 15, And the Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. Go again. The New Living Translation says, Go again and play the part of a worthless shepherd. They said, I want you to go out there and I want you to become a foolish shepherd again. So Zechariah is once again playing out the foolish shepherd. He's not going to care for the young sheep who would wander off or those who would be mishandled like a shepherd would. He would not protect or give his life for the sheep. He would not care for or tend to the wounded or the broken. And he would not feed and water the flock to care for them, but only would do what would suit himself for a prophet. Verse 16, For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that are still that still stand. In other words, whoever hasn't been killed, eaten, for those that are few that are still standing. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. The New American Standard Bible reads verse 11 this Uh, Verse 16 this way. Indeed, I am about to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not take heed to the sheep headed to slaughter, will not seek the scattered, and will not heal the injured. Moreover, he will not nourish the one that is healthy, but instead will eat the meat of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. What God is saying is this. You have rejected my good shepherd. You sold him as a slave. So, since you rejected the good shepherd, I am going to raise up for you a worthless shepherd, one who will not care for the sheep, and one who will lead them to destruction. We saw this partially fulfilled when Jesus was put before the people, and Pilate said, Who shall I redeem for you? Who shall I set free? And they said, Barabbas. I did some research on that to find out what happened to Barabbas afterwards. There's not a whole lot of history and there's a little bit of tradition on it. One tradition has that Barabbas, after he was set free, actually went to the place of the crucifixion and watched Jesus die. Another thing shows that Barabbas went and got involved in another insurrection and rebelling against the Roman authority. And in that particular one, he died. But that's all I was able to find out on the guy. But we'll see a partial fulfillment in him, but there's a full fulfillment coming up, and that is in the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the worthless shepherd that Israel will pick because they rejected the good shepherd. God is saying here in this prophecy, I'm raising up for you a worthless shepherd. I want you to see what a worthless shepherd does. A worthless Shepherd leads you to doom. He leads you to destruction. He doesn't care for the young. He doesn't behave like a shepherd. He won't give his life for the sheep. He won't pursue the lost, the wandering off ones. He won't bind up your wounds, try and heal the injuries that the sheep get. He won't take you to places for there to be feeding and watering. No, he's going to be pretty much a worthless shepherd. He's just going to do all that he has to do to get as much out of you as he can. And he doesn't even care if you all die. This is Antichrist. Despite this very eloquent prophecy, Israel will put themselves 
under Antichrist. They did this under Antiochus because if you remember the history lessons we've given you in the past, just give you a short one on this on now. When Israel was first divided up among the four um, kings of Greece, they were under the Ptolemies, which is the king of the south. They were not under the Seleucid Empire or the king of the north. They made a treaty with the king of the north to rebel against the Ptolemies and to put Palestine under the king of the north. Then came Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's the one who slaughtered the Israelites. He's the one who desecrated the temple. But initially he had no avenue to do that. If Israel would have listened to the prophecies of Daniel, they would have known, no, don't don't put yourself under them. He's the one that's going to do this. God is telling him here in Zechariah, look, there's a worthless shepherd coming up. There are ways for you to be able to tell he's a worthless shepherd. You're not going to see it. You're going to put yourself under him. And this is what he's going to do. It's going to lead you to slaughter. It's going to lead you to destruction. And you're going to follow this because you rejected the good shepherd. There are some who haven't rejected the good shepherd. They are watching the good shepherd. You know who they are? It starts off with 144,000 of the Israelites who received Jesus Christ and start off the tribulation to tell people about Jesus. But many of the Jewish people, they don't accept Jesus. Even in the tribulation, the nation as a whole does not accept Jesus. And they pursue this worthless shepherd. Verse 17, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. The Lord's coming after him. The New Living puts this verse this way. What sorrow awaits this worthless shepherd who abandons the flock? The sword will cut his arm and pierce his right eye. His arm will become useless and his right eye completely blind. There is sorrow that awaits this worthless shepherd. And we know the sorrow from the book of Revelation. We know the things that are coming. We may not know what happened to Barabbas, but we sure do know what happens to the Antichrist. We're given a lot of detail on that one, even before it even happens. So this worthless shepherd awaits Israel because they rejected the good shepherd. There's a reason for it. God didn't just send the worthless shepherd. They rejected the good shepherd. They have yet to repent of that rejecting of the good shepherd. Those that still walk the earth still follow in that same rejection. So here's the question. How can we know if a good word or a harsh word is from God? In this case, God had spent most of this word talking about the restoration and the strengthening God would do. And then he switches over. Now, not all the things that God speaks are obvious in their meaning and their application. They can be known, but we have to apply ourselves to gain the understanding. We know in the life of Jesus, he wasn't about just handing understanding out to people. I want you to want it. Very often, the fast, quick, instantly understood concepts are not the intended meaning. The child of God is expected to seek God in gaining a greater understanding. Here, we see that if there's going to be a great restoration, could it also be preceded by destruction and alienation? If someone was to pursue the meaning of this, well, all right, God is talking about such great restoration. We are already restored. Is he talking that there's going to be a greater restoration than what we're walking in now? Or is he talking about a restoration because there's going to be another depletion? Another destruction. If Israel had to be recalled once, could it not also happen again? Now the pattern of the Word of God is this. It's always that blessings follow those that truly submit and seek God. Living a life of faith and trust. That's the pattern. God is always throwing blessings, having blessings follow those who truly submit and seek God. Not those who just do it 
to get recognition of men. Not those who do it without pursuing in the deep meaning of what God is trying to say. Not those who just grab the surface meaning of what Scripture says. But those who press in. Those are the ones that God makes sure that blessings follow them. But in the same way, destruction will follow disobedience and rebellion. It will follow individually. And it will follow on a national level. Those who know God or those who just have their wishes about God. Some people just wish, well, I wish God would do this. They will only see good things. They'll see only good things in their life and what they deserve to receive. See, some people, they, well, I know God, but they don't press in to really understand God. I know about God. But I'm not really pressing in to find out what his word is teaching me to, to do. I'm okay with a shallow, shallow surface meaning. And I'm okay to just go on out there and, you know, just do what I think I ought to do. And that's it. I'm all right with that. I'm okay with just having, well, I wish God would do this for me. Well, I wish God would do this. I just go around wishing and hoping. They see good things happening in their life. They may even call for them, confess them. They may talk about what they deserve to have. Well, I deserved for God to heal me. I deserve for God to bless me. They blame God for the bad or they blame other people. They believe in mercy for themselves while they pronounce judgment on other people. They may even hope or confess good things for themselves, but there is no basis for the speech. There is no basis for the expectation. There is nothing to have faith in. They just say it. They just confess it. But those who are truly watching God, those that have truly come to know Him through His Word, through His acts, through living the way that God wants us to live, they understand that actions have consequences. Rebellion and blatant disobedience without repentance will open a door to the enemy, bringing a harvest of unwanted results. Individuals will bear the fruit of the things they have done, but the sins of a nation will have national results. They understand this. They understand this about God. A nation that sins, there's going to be some things that come against that nation. People who don't know God may see the nation's sins, and Israel did this in their past. They saw the sins, but no, God won't do that. No, God won't bring it out upon us. No, God loves us. They found out that was not the case. Here's a couple of examples for you to think about. Paul nearly came under the judgment of his own rejection and that of his country's rejection, but he was saved because individually he repented. If he had lived until 70 A.D., he likely would have missed the national Judgment that all the leaders who rejected Messiah received. He would have missed the judgment that came upon the city. Because Paul, after he repented of rejecting Jesus and saw the light of this, he rejected basically Jerusalem. He, he kind of distanced himself. I'm not of that. No, I'm over here from Antioch. I don't know about them Jerusalem people. He was not, uh, not out there for that. How about Josiah? Individual repentance spared him and the nation's repentance he led the nation in spared them for a little while. Never is there a recorded prayer to spare the nation after God revealed the word to the prophet. This word will come about. Josiah never once led them in a national prayer to ask God to recount. Because the word of God had been given. This destruction is coming. But, God said, because you repented, Josiah, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. Now, God knew as soon as he's gone, somebody else is going to come up and going to lead them back in the way they wanted to go. He knew it, and they did. But Josiah's individual repentance and his ability to get the nation to repent 
spared them all for a little while and him for his life. Heba Jeroboam. His individual rebellion and disobedience brought wrath upon his house. And the national rebellion he led Israel in brought judgment upon all the northern tribes. Some escaped by seeing what was going on and said, we're not, we're not staying here for this. And they went down to Judea. How about Manasseh? Manasseh's rebellion brought both individual and national consequences. But in the end, individually, he repented. He was not spared everything, but he was spared some things. Nationally, though, the ball was rolling. He got them rolling stronger into idolatry than they had ever been before. And he was not able to put any kind of a stop to that. And I saved the best for last. How about Daniel and company? They came under the judgment of the nation, and yet they themselves were not guilty. But when the nation was judged for their idolatry and the nation was conquered by Babylon and the people were taken into captivity, Daniel was taken too. Individually, they were not guilty. But on a national level, they were part of the nation and the judgment came upon the nation. There is never a prayer from Daniel or his friends, God spare us from this judgment. In fact, the closest thing we have is Daniel praying and he puts himself in the time, in the uh, prayer of repentance. None of his prayers included pleas to, please to God to be removed from judgment. He understood its role in God's plan. He understood that God's blessings can find them wherever they are. And when he finally saw in Scripture and had a foundation for faith, Ah, 70 years have been determined for our people. I see that now. He now has a reason to ask God, what is next? And that's when God dispatched an answer because he was waiting for someone to see it. Those that are unaware or refusing to understand how God works will simply beg and plead for mercy for all so that they themselves can be spared. They don't understand God. They're not watching the shepherd. They're not watching the hand of God. Watch the hand of God. Is it swaying in the area of mercy? Or has judgment come to harvest? Is obedience present for God to bless? Or are we just hoping vainly and without foundation? Our prayer should be more like Daniel's, where there's a foundation of faith. God, this is what you said in your word. How will you bring this about? But we also have to recognize the hand of God is there to judge sin. And Zechariah chapter 11 may not be the prettiest chapter in the Bible to study. But it shows you the hand of God. God says, I know what's coming. And even though that destruction is coming and you're going to be dispersed and things that I've had in place over you to protect you are going to be broken. Zechariah chapter chapter 10 is still in place. And I still will bring you back. And I still have a future for you. That's how great our God is. Make sure that when we are living, when we are praying, we pray not with selfish motivations, we pray not with short-sightedness, but we pray with an understanding that comes from God on the situation. Don't just close your eyes and try and pray for the best. Understand what the hand of God is and pray for it and receive it. Father, we thank you for your word. Even here with Israel, you saw ahead to the time when they would be disobedient, disrespectful, and even kill your son. Right now, that's not so. Right now, they're in a place where they are serving you. They are loving your word and they are growing. But you see what's ahead and you warn them. And there are some people who would say, we don't need that warning. That's not true. That's not God. 
And there's other people who have the ability to see what God is saying and understand what God is doing. Help us, Father, to come into a place of maturity with you in our walk, in our prayers, in our belief, in our faith. That we are not thrown by a little adversity. We're not bothered when we see something that seems like a test or a trial come into our life. When we look at the whole picture, what is the hand of the shepherd doing? Is the hand of the shepherd bent on mercy? Or is the hand of the shepherd on the judgment? Moses had this down. He knew when the hand was in judgment phase that mercy could still be accessed. And he knew when to step aside and let judgment take its course. Father, we want to know you like that too. Because you are the good shepherd. And what you desire is the best for the people that are here. Sometimes we get a little selfish in our prayers and a little short-sighted. But if we tap into the heart of God, we can get past that. I thank you for the help you give us in our prayers and our understanding. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.